Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. And when I have the time, I try to do an interview about an interesting book. Most of the time, I uh, manage uh, the hosts, many hosts on the network who do our interviews. I hope you listen to them. And when I saw Dreamland by Sam Quinones um, across my desk, I said to myself, I really have to talk to this fellow. Well, anyway, Sam, thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Marshall. Absolutely. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a reporter, an author, journalist. Um, I've been uh, doing this profession for uh, close to 30 years now. Um, uh, Dreamland is my third book. Uh, I spent, uh, I grew up in California, uh, went to UC Berkeley. Uh, I worked as a crime reporter, which was a, uh, one of the first jobs in my life in Stockton, California, which is one of the formative jobs, uh, almost like grad school, uh, you could say, uh, for me. I then, uh, very, also very important, uh, spent 10 years uh, living in Mexico as a reporter, as a freelance writer writing for all manner of magazines and newspapers. And uh, that was a hugely important part of my life. And out of that, I wrote my first two books, which are true tales, true stories uh, about Mexico. The first one was about Mexico. Uh, it's called True Tales, uh, uh, from, true Tales from Another Mexico, The Lynch Mob, The Popsicle Kings, Chalino, and The Bronx. And that was about Mexico, stories from Mexico, particularly Mexico on the margins. And the second book was called Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, True Tales of Mexican Migration. And that was, again, all about Mexican immigrants, both in the United States and when they also return uh, uh, to Mexico, where their imp- impact is, is, is huge. Um, and so that, uh, yeah, I lived, I worked for uh, 10 years after, after coming back from Mexico, I worked for 10 years, uh, with the, um, with the Los Angeles times and resigned there in 2014. And I'm once again, uh, very happily a freelance writer. And that brings us up to the present, I think. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Could you please tell us uh, why you wrote dreamland? Well, what happened was, um, I, I think for most people, uh, most people in America kind of get into this story, understand this story, have contact with the story first through uh, prescription pain pills. That's their first contact that something's awry. There's an addiction in the family or police officers are dealing with pill mills or what have you, the renegade doctors or people using these pills, abusing these pills, this kind of thing. Uh, my experience was quite the opposite. My experience first was uh, I was on a team of reporters for the LA Times writing about the Mexican drug war. My focus was really on Mexico. And um, as part of that, I began to realize that heroin traffickers from Mexico were doing all of a sudden a real banner business. And I didn't understand why on earth that could possibly be. I, I thought heroin was this old style drug that no one used anymore or very few people used. It was not a really a big deal. And, and so why would they, the seizures be rising every year at the border and, you know, this kind of thing. And so I kind of backed into this story and I found this story um, in Huntington, West Virginia of a, a whole spate of, of heroin overdoses in West Virginia. This was a state I did not associate with heroin at all. And, and what's more, it was to black tar heroin. And I didn't understand how that could be either, because I know that black tar heroin, I knew this many years now, that black tar heroin in this hemisphere is only made in Mexico. 
and uh, black tar heroin for many years uh, was still the case, I thought, uh, never crossed the Mississippi River. It's really more of a West, Western U.S. drug. And, and so how could it be in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, in quantities large enough to uh, create massive overdoses. This was really the first big spate of overdoses, concentrated overdoses with people dying uh, that you found uh, uh, growing out of this story um, in, in, in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, didn't make any sense. And so I followed that up. That led me to a, a very large story about uh, this one town in Mexico, a, small, a very small town uh, in the state of Nayarit, where everyone in that town who comes to the United States, most everyone uh, sells heroin and they sell heroin in a very distinctive way, which is like pizza, a, a kind of a delivery system for heroin. And um, unlike most heroin traffickers, they are, they're very schooled. They have a system and they have spread, they have expanded. So they started in the Southern, in Southern California, the San Fernando Valley area of LA, and they, they in the in the 80s and, and and by the early 90s they were spreading throughout the western United States and 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 the late 90s they made it east of the Mississippi River and by the early to mid 2000s they were really ensconced in Columbus and in Nashville and Charlotte Indianapolis various towns uh, like that and and the, the deaths that I discovered in Huntington all had to do with their heroin that addicts from Huntington were driving to Columbus, Ohio to buy and then take home and the, the dope was so potent that it was really not um, uh, uh, it, it, they weren't able to to, to to withstand it and they, a lot of them them died now. Uh, so I was, that was the story I got very, very into for a couple years. Uh, I wrote a big piece of series of stories for the LA times about it and then got, uh, began to think, damn, this is a bigger, bigger story. But the, the, the thing that really hit me was it still didn't answer my question of why they would have a market for heroin in West Virginia in the first place. Again, it was not a state that I associated with heroin at all. I, I associated heroin with the big cities, you know, Chicago, L.A., New York, et cetera, that kind of thing. And, um, and so I, um, it was only then that I began to realize that as big as that story was, there was a much, much bigger story in how a, a demand for heroin was created in the first place. And that got me into the enormous story of, of, the, of the, the change in American medicine uh, with regard to pain management and the promotion, the aggressive uh, uh, prescribing of, of pain uh, pain pills, Vicodin, opiate, narcotic pain pills, opi uh, opiates like Vicodin, uh, Oxycontin, Percocet, and others that people may know. And um, so I really backed in to this story. But as I backed into, I began to realize, gee, this the, the Mexican story is big. But then I realized, dang, the 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 pill story is much much bigger. The heroin traffickers come second. And, uh, to this story, and and it's when I realized that that I began to think, dang, this is a this is a book I need to uh, write. Uh, it's a national story. I thought it was like a regional thing, you know, Columbus, Appalachia, and then I realized, no, 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 this is all over the country, and this heroin is going to break big. At the time, heroin was not the big deal that it's become in the last couple of year and a half or so. It's just it was it was a, the pill thing was still much much bigger, but I began to feel like. Everywhere there are pills, people are going to be transitioning to heroin, and that's what we're seeing. And that's that's um, that was the hunch I had that that, that pushed me to read uh, to write the book. Mm, it's 
it's, it's interesting because I've seen some of this, glimpsed it kind of out of the corner of my eye for much of my life. And uh-huh. so, for example, I think you and I were uh, probably uh, living in Berkeley at roughly the same time. And I saw a lot of people do a lot of drugs, and I think I did a lot of drugs, too, to be honest with you. I never did heroin, nor did I ever meet anyone who did. Right. It was just one of yeah. those things that people used to do. I heard about that. I heard about it in a Velvet Underground song. <laughs> that was the best I could do. Yes. But I didn't know anyone who did it. I didn't know how to get it. Well, I, mean, uh, in, I think what happened, though, was in that, that period of time, um, we were going through a, a, a change that, 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 that this was the 1980s. Part of, right. A big part of this story is that in the 1980s, our heroin market in the United States radically changed. Uh, up to that point, uh, for decades, and uh, especially in the 1970s with the big increase in heroin use in the late 60s and 1970s, um, a lot of our heroin came from the Far East. Uh, it came from Burma. Thailand, Vietnam, wherever, those, those kind of Afghanistan, maybe those kinds of countries, uh, Turkey, of course, the French connection case was built on heroin from Turkey. Um, but in the 1980s, what ends up happening is the, 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 the Far East heroin gets outcompeted by heroin coming up from Latin America, much closer. Heroin is a commodity. Uh, it's, it differs only in how much it's been diluted or cut. And so um, a lot of the price uh, of heroin uh, is uh, dependent on how far it has to travel. And if it's coming up from Mexico and Colombia, which was the two countries where it was principally made and where it's been principally made in our hemisphere, uh, it very easily outcompetes and uh, underprices uh, the heroin coming from 12,000, 15,000 uh, miles away, whatever it happens to be. And so all, that may, meant that our country essentially divided uh, at the Mississippi River. West of the United, west of the Mississippi was essentially Mexican heroin, uh, black tar mostly. East of the Mississippi was essentially Colombian heroin. But the, the case was that, that, that there, it was far cheaper than ever before. The thing was, though, nobody noticed that because, as you say, in those years, a lot of people were just, it was just people weren't really using heroin. It was other drugs that were far more popular. Crack, of course, being a big one. Mm-hmm. Then later, methamphetamine, always marijuana, of course. But um, heroin was just like, no one really noticed this. This becomes only important when, in the late 1990s, this pain revolution in American medicine takes place and takes hold, and a huge, huge, massive new supply of opiate pain pills is unleashed on the country. Um, and then, then all of a sudden, cheap heroin is, is, is a huge issue because people with their, with, get addicted to these pills and develop enormous tolerances to it. So they're using two, 300 milligrams a day of this stuff and uh, they can't sustain it because on the street, the pills are going for a dollar a milligram. So that's, you know, you're spending hundred, 200, 300 bucks a day on this. You just can't sustain that. So you look around for a much cheaper, but equivalent alternative. And of course, heroin and these pills are all derivative of, of the, uh, the opium poppy. They're all chemically very, very similar. They're narcotics, all of them, and they're all great painkillers. And, and this uh, basically um, uh, creates a, a situation in which people are, are paying two, 300 bucks a day looking for a, a cheap alternative. And all of a sudden, that switch in the 1980s becomes hugely relevant because it's all, it's pro- the Mexico and, and Colombia uh, are providing the very cheap 
uh, heroin is when people begin begin to switch. And one of the first places we're seeing that all across the country today. Right now, that's the story in almost in many many communities in every state uh, of this country, I believe. Um, but back then, in the mid two thousands, the the first place one of the first places you saw that. Um, was in Huntington, West Virginia, where pill addicts were switching to much cheaper heroin. And then, of course, a lot of them were dying because the, the heroin was not only cheaper, it's uh, far more potent because it doesn't travel as far, doesn't change hands, doesn't cut as much. And so people were, were dying. And that's kind of what we're seeing uh, today, again, in many, many parts of the country. But the, um, the first or among the first uh, cases of this was the one I wrote about in Dreamland uh, in Huntington, West Virginia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so uh, just to go back to your and my story, so we're in the in Berkeley in the 80s, and uh, I, I won't speak for you, but I was doing drugs, but none of the really popular ones were heroin. Um, so it existed kind of only in my mind, and that was true for a long time. Uh, until, uh, I think it was around 2002, and I was living in Boston at the time, and there were all these reports of these whacked-out junkies breaking into pharmacies, trying to steal pills called OxyContin. I don't know if you remember this, but it was like yeah. Wild West. I mean, they were breaking right. into these places with guns, and all they wanted was this one thing. They didn't want phenobarbital. They didn't want you know, right. cocaine. They didn't want anything. They wanted this one thing, OxyContin. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't even know it was an opiate. Right. <laughs> but it was driving, in the press, it was driving them wild. It was driving them to crime. So this really is right. And, and, right and, 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 and Oxycontin is the game changer. That's what cre- creates this whole problem that we're dealing with today. And the, it's important to understand uh, how that is or how that could be. Yeah, um, first of all, it's important, you know, before Oxycontin, the, the opiate narcotic painkillers that were out there were all, were all um, uh, combined with acetaminophen or Tylenol as abuse deterrent so that you didn't couldn't really do a lot, use a lot of these pills with, without doing great damage to the, to your innards, to your liver and kidney and what have you. Um, and so, uh, these are pills like Lortab, Percocet, Vicodin. They all had some abuse deterrent in them. And so people would mess around with them, maybe even get addicted to them, but never make that switch to, to heroin. Uh, and never be able to develop enormous tolerances because by then their their it would turn their their insides to goo. You know, mm-hmm. just it would just uh, de- destroy the the per, a person's uh, um, uh, innards, kind of. And so um, that that was the case for many years because those pills have been around for a long time, and people really didn't switch to heroin off a bike. Some did, but it was not like large numbers. You know, um, so what ends up happening is 1996. Purdue Pharma, a, 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 a Connecticut-based pharmaceutical company, comes out with OxyContin. And OxyContin is, is fundamentally different from those narcotic painkillers of the past in that it has no abuse deterrent, has no Tylenol, no acetaminophen. In fact, the point of OxyContin is um, it, it's oxycodone continuous. That's how you get the word OxyContin. Uh, it's a time-release pill that is coated with a time-release formula that Purdue developed. And um, the, the, the idea is that this will kind of leak a painkiller into your body over a 12-hour period, and you will have substantial pain relief without having to take a pill every two hours, as was the case with the, the other pills. If you're in pain, you had to take a pill every two, three hours. Uh, every six hours, whatever happens to be. With OxyContin, you take one in the morning, one in the evening, and supposedly 
uh, you're fine. But in order to do that, they had to include a lot of painkiller in each pill. First was 40 milligrams, then 80 milligrams for a while, though they, though they discontinued it. There was 160 milligrams. And so uh, you had a lot of dope in one, one pill with no uh, abuse deterrent in it. And what ends up happening is people start getting addicted. Some people, it's due to just simple recreational drug, they're drug abusers or what have you. Uh, they, they find it on the street or they par- find it at a party. Others get addicted uh, uh, from using it exactly as doctors uh, prescribe. Uh, but whatever the case, it, it, uh, they begin to abuse it, uh, uh, suck off that, that time release uh, a time release formula and just use the drug, smoke it, uh, 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 swallow it or smoke it. Uh, eventually they may be snorting it. And finally, uh, as their, as their, their tolerance rises, uh, Oxycontin has the effect. The crucial thing about Oxycontin is it has the effect because it's pure dope. There's no t- abuse to turn of increasing people's tolerances steadily very and very quickly over a period of six months, you could rise from, from 80 milligrams, say a day to uh, 300. Um, and that's a very, very expensive habit to, to, to form. Plus the important thing is here, Oxycontin, particularly in those years in the, in the late two, late nineties. And, and for most of the first decade of, of this century uh, was in huge supply all across the country. You could find it in, in many, many places uh, in the black market because doctors were prescribing it so aggressively and pill mills then uh, were, were, were starting up where people would just routinely prescribe things without any pain diagnosis for their patients. Um, and so you had this huge, huge supply, which, which is what allowed a lot of people to get addicted. This is a supply story more than anything else, not a demand story. It starts with supply. And so people would develop these enormous tolerances that they could not very easily wean off of, and they needed something else. And, and so it became in the, in the words of several uh, addicts I talked to, uh, a quote, no brainer to then switch to heroin. It was a financially mm-hmm. a much qu- a better decision, uh, although it was a, a catastrophic decision as well, because it was very, a whole lot more difficult to, to kick heroin at, uh, for a lot of these folks. Um, uh, they switched to heroin. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but Oxycontin is the reason we have a heroin addiction problem in America, growing heroin addiction problem in America uh, uh, today, because nobody else before was going to develop the tolerance that would have pushed someone to then switch to heroin mm-hmm. uh, from, from the pills and nothing else would have. Uh, done that except uh, OxyContin. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the role of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and doctors uh, for a second, and I'll, I'll give an, another anecdote uh, where, where I kind of ran into this. I ran into things in your books in my own mind. So in about 1994, three, I think, I hurt my back very badly playing basketball, and I had all kinds of tests done on it, and MRIs and CAT scans and things like this, and I was in a lot of pain. And you know, I asked the doctors about pain medication, and this was in Boston again, and they said. Uh, that I should take a lot of um, take a lot of Advil. <laughs> That's yeah. all they had for me. They're like, right. sorry, we got nothing else for you. But there are these other things, right? They're like, yeah, there are, but we're not going to give them to you. You're going to take a lot right. of Advil. You're going to take like 10 a day. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're going to do. And I'm like, really? That's all you have? They're like, yep. That's all we're going to give you. <laughs> so right. so right. Those, those doctors were acting responsibly, I think, right? I, I mean, I guess they were. I don't know. It, it helped, I guess. But then I think one of the things you say in the book is that by the late nineties, they would have had a different answer for me. Yes. Right. And this, this is, this is, this is, as I said, the crucial, 
change that um, that created this problem t- today, and that was that, yeah, as you say, as you noted uh, uh, when you went to, for many years, for decades, doctors would not prescribe opiate narcotics except for the most extreme examples of dying of terminal cancer patients, you know, or the most extreme pain. Uh, it was very rare. In a lot of hospitals, you had to get two or three um, signatures to sign off on using these drugs. Nobody would ever take send send patients home with bottles of the stuff. Um, but in the mid 1990s, there was a revolution really in pain management in the United States. It actually began, began in the 80s, but it got revving, you could say, in the 1990s. And this held certain things. First of all, it was pushed at first by um, pain specialists. And these were young doctors, I think, who had, who had grown, who had come into medicine and been seared, I believe, by the experience of watching people beg, beg for pain relief, uh, particularly um, uh, in palliative care, hospice care, dying patients, that kind of thing, um, beg for relief and not get it, even though the pills were right there. And, and I think as a young doctor, if you see this and, and you get into medicine to help people and assuage pain, relief pain, you, to watch this kind of affects you. And I think my best, ex- my best feeling is that these, a lot of these pain specialists early on were affected in this way. Like okay. They thought this is so wrong. If I could just jump in there, uh, my, one of my best yeah. friends from Berkeley who then became an anesthesiologist, I think he began practicing in the late, it must have been the late 80s, early 90s. I think he was one of these people because he founded a pain, he, was, he started pain management. I think he had seen What's his name? People. Well, I don't want to give you his name, but uh, he, oh, okay. I'm happy to give you his name off air if you want to talk to him. But anyway, he was, <laughs> he was, um, he was very uh, – he told me, he said, you know, I've seen this. I've seen these people in pain. I know what to do. I can stop this. Yeah. I've just been in medical right. school. They've taught me about how to fix this, and I can't do it. They won't let me do it. And uh, then later he right. went on to, into pain management. And it, exactly. That, that, I think that experience – for young doctors is a, is extraordinarily impactful. I mean, it just, it, 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 it sears you and, and it, and it makes you uh, uh, remember that, you know, you don't forget that. Mm-hmm. And so these guys developed, I believe, a, almost a, a religious fervor or a revolutionary fervor with regard to pain, narcotic pain pills that they really wanted because they had to push so hard against the conventional wisdom, which was to say, don't ever use these ever. Um, they had to push so hard against that that they didn't stop pushing hard, you might say. And so, so they kept on and, and they won, I would say it, it didn't take long to win the argument that these pills should be used for dying cancer patients, because after all, uh, if a person's addicted the last three months of his life, is that really important? What's more important is to allow the person to, to live the last three months of his life uh, in dignity, pain-free, relatively pain, pain-free. But the thing is, I think once they started pushing, they didn't stop. And they kept pushing to say, this is really, really important to use for all manner of pain. We have all people, a lot of people in chronic pain. We needed to use it for them. And, and there grew up a kind of a, a, a revolutionary fervor to change this kind of uh, uh, attitude in, in medicine. It was then, of course, helped by pharmaceutical companies who were then developing um, uh, uh, um, drugs, pills like OxyContin. Um, that, that they wanted to, to promote. And they saw this as in the past, they had marketed these kinds of pills only to dying cancer patients. Now they saw a much, much larger market uh, in 
people who had chronic pain, people who had acute pain, you know, three or four days out of surgery. And, you know, the truth is that these pills do work very well for certain kinds of pain. The problem was the pendulum began to swing from never using it ever to, and, and it didn't stop. It didn't stop in, the, in a happy medium, in a happy middle somewhere. It, it kept on going to the point where it was use these pills for every kind of pain. Uh, use these pills. And, and, and the idea grew up that was extraordinarily important in all this, that these pills were virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. That was the assumption that all of basically American medicine was operating on by the late 1990s, early 2000s, that these pills could be used and they would not addict a pain patient. Now that proved to be extraordinarily incorrect and false. Um, they had no proof that that was the case when they began pushing this idea. Um, but whatever the case, they were able to, to, to convince an entire generation two I would say two generations, basically uh, of, of doctors almost got, got, was convinced of this, that this was true. And so they began to not just prescribe these pills after say an acute, uh, a surgery, which is really when you should prescribe them. They're, they're great for like the three days after you've been cut open, uh, when the, when the pain, the three to five days when the pain is acute and you want that pain, uh, they began to say, what does it matter? How, how many pills we prescribe after that, if they're virtually non-addictive. And so instead of prescribing somebody say six Vicodin or 10 Vicodin after uh, an appendix operation, for example, or a wisdom tooth extraction, uh, they would prescribe 60 or 90. Mm -hmm. And all of this, uh, it, it, this began to happen all over the country. That's the important thing here, that doctors everywhere in America bought into this idea in a way that is not true, say in Europe, for example, mm -hmm. uh, or in Mexico. Um, in Canada so much. Um, they, bought, they bought into this idea and, and uh, that created an enormous, enormous supply of pills that were just kind of sloshing around the country. And a lot of that was diverted into the, into the black market. A lot of those people, in fact, did get addicted. A lot of those, those pills later made it to parties and, and, and various places. And that became, but that became the way we treated pain, it, almost to the exclusion of almost anything else, that became the way we, we, we treated pain. And your friend's, your friend's example, your friend's story is the story of a lot of guys who grew up in, into medicine in the 1980s. And, they, and I think what's happened now is we've seen the, the, the collateral damage, which is nightmarish and is nationwide from that idea. And a lot of people are really retreating from that, from that position. But I would say it's been a relatively recent thing, only in the last year or two have people really begun to understand the consequences uh, of, of, of that revolution in, in, man, in pain management and medicine here. Mm -hmm. and, and let me make clear that my friend is super smart and the biggest do-gooder you could ever meet. And, uh, you know, uh, they all are. I mean, you they really, you really people, wanted to help there's people. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody in this story is a dummy. Yeah. Nobody in this story. That's the thing. The thing is, uh, uh, you know, everybody in this story is extraordinarily smart. Uh, there are a few, uh, I'm talking about the pain specialists now yeah. there, of course, uh, in, 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 in modern medicine, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a certain number of quacks who get into this. And of course they start these pain mill, pill mills and yeah. stuff, but the guys who start this stuff are not devious, uh, evil no, people. No, no, they are people who think they're doing the right thing. It just turns out that on a mass scale, 
it, it has, a, 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 as I say, nightmarish collateral damage. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about pill mills for, for a second, because I, 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 I knew a little bit about them. The first time I encountered them was uh, actually in uh, 12-step meetings in the um, in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s. And this was the first time I met people who were addicts who uh, weren't heroin addicts, basically. They were pill addicts, yeah. right? And I did not understand that when I first heard it. I met a girl, I won't tell you her name, name as well. And, and she's like, yeah, I'd never bought any street drugs. I didn't do any of that crap. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm a respectable person. <laughs> and she right. said, but pills are my thing. You know, I would go to the doctor and I'd get pills because I, I had chronic pain or whatever. She, you know, she, it was with a wink and a nudge that she had chronic pain, but. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about those pill mills. Sure, and and what ends up happening that the one of the the kind of the extreme uh, um, consequences of the pill revolution uh, in modern American medicine um, is the pain is the pill mill. Well, really, it's the pain clinic. Now, the pain clinics people set up pain clinics to deal specifically with people's pain. Now, a lot of these pain clinics um, start out at legit. And some of them stay legit. And so the doctor really is serious about diagnosing you, uh, uh, treat, you know, MRIs maybe, a lot, of, a lot of ways of trying to figure out what your pain problem is. Uh, frequently, though, or perhaps, I'm not sure frequently, but many times you find that doctors end up, in a pain management clinic ends up being a pill mill. I asked a, do, a, a cop one time, what do you, what's the difference between a pain clinic and a pill mill. Well, pain clinic, um, pill mill, he says, offers almost no diagnosis. You come in, what's your problem? I got this pain in my back. Okay, here, <laughs> boom, you're, you're on your way. I got this pain in my neck. Okay, you're on your way. And, so, and in some cases, of course, they were, one, one guy in particular in, in eastern Kentucky was actually, uh, he just had mimeographed, Xeroxed off a bunch of, of the same prescription. Uh, a certain amount of Oxycontin, a certain amount of Xanax, a certain amount of Vicodin, I can't remember what all it was, but he had stacks of the same prescription. He would give them to people as they came in. And what, hap what happened in modern medicine was this was viewed, these pills were viewed as a boon to doctors, to pain doctors in particular. They end up really being a curse because uh, you cannot get these pills prescribed to you over the phone. You have to go in to a clinic. You have to, and, and so a lot of doctors saw this as a way of keeping their waiting rooms packed, and they began to not use, uh, they began to use only, accept um, only cash, no insurance, and so it became a cash cow. So people every month, every month would go into the doctor's office and um, pay two hundred fifty bucks and get a prescription, and that that prescription they would then take to uh, a pharmacy uh, and get it filled. And now uh, those, those, those prescriptions inc included huge uh, numbers of pills, you know, um, uh, 120 Vicodin, uh, 120 Oxycontin, a bunch of Xanax, to, uh, on, on and on like that. And you could end up using a lot of that, but then also selling a lot of that on, uh, on the street. The difference the, the cop told me also is a pain, uh, a pill mill will have p long lines outside uh, they'll have people getting pizza delivered uh, in, in line because they don't want to lose their they don't want to lose their place. They come in. Uh, they have no care for what they look like. So a lot of people will come in their pajamas. Right. Uh, occasionally, you'll see that there'll be fist fights in line, and you'll see a, usually an average of about uh, ninety seconds to three minutes per 
per per uh, per customer per patient. Let's call them customer, but patient does supposedly. Mm-hmm. And 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 these began to sprout up in various places um, across the country. The big the place that I talk about where they where the pill mill was really invented. The 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 place where the, there was the capital of the pill mill where this this business model was invented was the town of Portsmouth, Ohio, on the on the Ohio River across just across the river from Kentucky. Uh, I've got one doctor invented this in the late nineties using using oxycontin really and, and then Vicodin Percocet as as his sta- staple. And other doctors he had an accident and uh, and couldn't practice me- a car accident, couldn't practice medicine. Supposedly, he begins to hire other doctors who he brings in from across the country. A lot of these doctors have drug and alcohol addiction issues themselves. They're kind of almost on the, the point of losing their licenses. Uh, this is like a, a a boon to them, and and they they begin to and, and they learn the business. And a lot of those guys go out and start their own clinic, seeing what a big business it is, they leave him and go out. And so the, the business model by 1998, 1999, 2000 is really spreading throughout that area. And then, of course, as a business model, it spreads throughout the country. The, the reason, though, this turned out to be a curse is you, you, you think that a pill like this would, okay, it's great. I'm able to take care of my patient's pain finally. What it eventually does, though, to many, many doctors is that it destroys their kind of ethical compass. They begin to just pres- rely on these pills and rely on these pills far, far too much. And, and they, they encounter daily, uh, very aggressive, very, very insistent patients demanding these pills. And a period of time, they just kind of break down. A lot of people just lose the scruples or the ethical compass that, that mm-hmm. once guided them. And they become corrupted uh, themselves. And they become part of the problem because some of these pill mills are, are prescribing millions of pills uh, a year, you know, it's just a remarkable amount of pills that these guys do. However, I would say this about the pill mill. Uh, they are not, pill mills are not why we have this problem today. There are not, there were never enough pill mills in America to create the problem that we have today. The problem was really created because a whole bunch nationwide, uh, an entire generation or two of doctors mm. nationwide accepted the idea that this was the way to treat pain and could be done so at virtually no risk of addicting your patient. Mm-hmm. That Those folks, that the entire medical uh, community of America basically is why we have this problem. It does not it is not a few bad apples that created the problem, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, my experience with my very, very good friend, who I admire very, very much, and who has done the world a lot of good, is completely consistent with that. Completely consistent. Yeah. And I would also say that in preparation for this interview, I asked some people who know a little bit about this industry, apparently that the FDA has gotten uh, down on doctors now, and that uh, I asked somebody, I said, if I went to a doctor now, and I said that I had tremendous, you know, my knees really bothered me, doc, give me some Vicodin or some Oxycontin, the doctor would laugh a little bit and say, here's some acetaminophen for you. <laughs> and that, right. that I would not get that stuff. You could take a massage. That might be good. Acupuncture is supposed to work. But uh, I think that anymore, if she's correct, that... Uh, well, here the thing is, though, that with pain management, I think what people are returning to, what got eclipsed by the opiate pain pill was this more holistic approach to pain management. It was um, opiates are part of, of it, but not a, not a big part. And, 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 and so doctors are returning to the idea that, that, um, that a, a variety of strategies on, the, on one patient, particularly for chronic pain, is, is, is the way to go. The problem with that is, and this is the reason why the opiates were so, so appealing, is that it's very difficult 
for uh, uh, an American patient in modern America today to buy into the idea that you need to, it, it involves a lot of wellness choices. You know, you need to eat better. You need to stop smoking, <laughs> stop drinking sodas. You need to, to eat, fewer, get up off the couch. You have, need to exercise above all is the, one of the most important things you can do to keep yourself from this problem or to, to assuage a problem. Uh, acupuncture uh, is part of the issue. Sometimes job and marital counseling can be part of the, of the approach. I mean, there's a whole panoply that that's the problem right. the pain is really a difficult thing to treat it is not something you can we would treated it with one approach for everybody pills for everybody and the truth is that it's just not that easy and and life is not that simple life yeah. is complicated and we learned that with this um and and so but 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 because doctors were encountering patients in, in America who did not want to buy into the idea that they needed to walk more and stop drinking Coca-Cola and, um, and, and cut down on a lot of other, other uh, things that they were doing because of that, they really needed, uh, they, 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 they felt that they needed um, another uh, simpler solution and the pills were that solution. Right. And of course, the problem is that it created a whole bunch of other problems that no one was considering. It reminds me a little bit of what they say in AA and that is that, uh, in order for this program to work, you just have to stop drinking and change your entire life. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Right. Just stop drinking. Right. Change right. your That's, entire life. Yeah, and, <laughs> and with with pain, with pain management, that frequently is the approach. Yeah. The, the thing is this, though. We want simplicity. We yeah. want easy answers. And sometimes life doesn't provide them. Yeah. That's You know, since I've written this book, I've been like, gotten into a whole new exercise regimen where I'm swimming every day. <laughs> seriously, seriously, yeah, right. seriously. I, I mean, it, I it, it, that's what it gets back to. Right it's now. individual an individual uh, accountability, right. you know, individual right. discipline. You've got to do it. And and it seems to me that that, that is, uh, that we all need to do that. Right? Yeah, no, that's right. And, and I guess I want to go back just to, we're almost out of time, but uh, again, kind of in preparation for this interview, I, I talked to somebody I know who knows a lot about these things, and what she said to me was, you know, uh, she, she had read your book, actually, and she said, yeah, he's right. Uh, I lived through this. He's right about the black tar heroin, and he's right about the doctors, and he's uh, right about the pill yeah. and all that is totally correct. Uh, the explanation is correct. But the tragedy, in addition to the fact that a lot of people are dying from heroin uh, overdoses, is that pain still isn't very well managed. And it may even be the yes. case that these drugs are still underprescribed because we're, so, we're afraid of them again. And that people who need uh, yes. them aren't getting them. There is, see, that we, we have trouble finding that happy medium, yeah. you know, as a country. Maybe, maybe that's just human nature. I suspect it may be just human nature. I don't know. But, yes, there is a, there is a role for these pills in pain management. Uh, you're never going to hear me say, gee, we should ban them. Or we should just stop prescribing them. It's, why is that better than overprescribing? It wasn't. It wasn't back right. in the days when when they didn't prescribe this for or use these pills at all. That people were in indecent, uh, horrifying pain. There's, that's not good. That's not good either. No. So you can, there has to be a a, a, um, a happy medium that, that that where pills are used, particularly pills are used to get people up and going on other strategies for pain management. And maybe you could say, well, you should go swim. Well, I can't even get out of my chair. How am I going to swim? You know. So uh, maybe maybe the pain management uh, approach is to use pills to get you up and moving a little bit, and then get you into other other strategies. I was speaking with a with a guy from um, a, a pain 
sufferer, a guy who's formed his own foundation. Um, and, and he um, uh, was saying, no, no, none of us wanted only, we did not want only pain pills. That was not what we ever wanted. We just wanted a, a balanced approach, but you cannot have a balanced approach without these pills being part of the picture. The problem is they cannot be the majority of the picture. They cannot be most of it. They, but there is a, there is a role for, for them. And right. I buy that. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense in that, you know, maybe these are this, this way of, of saying, of, of getting people up and moving. And then once they're up and moving, they can try other, other things. Those other things are just as important. And if, the, if you're not going to use them, then they're not going to have the effect that you, you're not going to control the pain. But it's also true that pain is, is almost like a subjective thing. It's, it's, it's every individual has a different pain problem and a, and, and a different pain, pain solution. And that's why we ran into huge problems with, um, with one, uh, using one pill mm -hmm. for the whole, uh, for everybody in the country. Mm -hmm. Well, what you said resonates and, very much with me. And again, it goes back to this quip that people in AA will sometimes say you have to stop drinking and change your whole life because really, uh, I mean, I've been in the program for many years now and I can tell you that not drinking in this case or not using is, the prerequisite for getting the benefits of the program. The stop sure. drinking and stopping using isn't going to do you any good at all. You're still going to be a kind of a mess. Um, it's all that other stuff that you have to do, which is really uncomfortable and hard. Uh, I have to tell yeah. you, uh, it's, it's not any fun at all. I mean, later today, I'm going to go visit a bunch of my friends. <laughs> I have to do this a lot. <laughs> you know, take an hour out of my day. And I have to go to these people and talk to them. And they're great. I love them. But, you know, I kind of wish I was a normie sometimes and I didn't have to do that. But that's really the price of me being sane as an addict. And so, yeah. you know, that's what I have to do. You have to go swimming. I have to go talk to these people. <laughs> right. And, and, um, and, you know, we, we, I think part of the story really coincides with, um, with our own, um, uh, prosperity as a country. We kind of won the cold war, you know, and mm -hmm. we began to think that there was no real, uh, we, we wanted simplicity at that when simple things, we didn't want to be bothered with the complexities of, of the world or, or, or of life. Uh, we also, I think, a big part of this story is that we were very, very, um, we still are, uh, we, we had grown extraordinarily isolated from each other mm -hmm. um, in many, many ways, uh, in poor communities and wealthy communities the same. It, it was, there was an isolation. And of course, opiates and uh, heroin in particular are the most uh, isolating of, of, of drugs, right? I mean, you, 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 the heroin addict wants nothing more than to spend all his time alone or with his dope buddies. In a, in a small room or something, no one wants to kind of interact. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, we had built up a kind of a, an idea that that the path to happiness was was buying lots and lots of stuff. Right. And and uh, and 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 heroin is the final stuff, right? That'll take away all your pain, make you happy, remove the complexity of life. To me, uh, a lot of what this story became about. I was a I'm a crime reporter and. Initially, I thought I was writing a crime book, a drug book or something like that. And it turned into more a story about what we'd become as, as a country, what American had become and Americans, what we have become. Uh, and it's very isolated, very uh, isolated by technology, isolated by suburban development, uh, isolated by fear of the outside, fear of the public. Nobody goes outside in the streets anymore. Kids don't play in the streets as much anymore. All that kind of stuff. We raised a whole population of kids to fear pain above all else. When in fact, mm. pain is actually 
a, a good thing for in, 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 in some measure for uh, for uh, development of a person. Uh, you need pain. You need to learn from, from pain of pain of all kinds. And we had gotten away from that. It seems to me we, we you know, so we have a, a whole generation of kids grown to fear pain, fear, discomfort, fear, maybe even hard work, uh, difficulty above all things. And, and, and heroin seemed to, um, and these opiates seem to be like the perfect, uh, um, antidote to all of that, to, to pain, to difficulty, to discomfort. And, uh, that's one, I think it's, it gets into a much larger, uh, story of who we become, uh, as a, as Americans, uh, that this story does, it seemed, it seemed to me as I was writing it, that, that there were bigger issues involved besides simply whether or not the doctor down the street was prescribing too much, many pills. That's certainly of course, essential to the story. I'm just saying that there's a, a, a deeper part to this. Um, that, that's very important uh, in understanding how we got uh, to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right about that. I mean, uh, I, 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 uh, I thought a lot about these things, honestly, and, um, you know, I, I know that for many uh, years of my own life, I pinned my hope on success of various kinds and maybe getting things, although things really weren't my thing, but certainly the approbation of my peers was important to me, and I got that. And, sure. You know, you get a little bit, I, maybe this is just matured, and you get a little bit later in life, and you're just, um, you realize that your suffering yeah. just doesn't have anything to do with what's around you. It's all in your head. And, and really what you need to do is fix your head somehow. And we don't, Americans don't know how yeah. to do that. I think Buddhists know how to do that, but I don't. I was raised a Lutheran. <laughs> we have no idea. That's one of the reasons I, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I suggest in the, in the afterward is that people need to, you know, be more out in the open, be in public a lot more, be around your neighbors, create that community. This is a story uh, I often say in my talks about isolation versus community. The drug thrives and isolate when people are isolated, when communities are fragmented. Uh, the way to de defeat it is in community in a variety of ways, um, bringing together pe people who, uh, 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 for example, uh, cops, public health, uh, PTA, uh, Kiwanis and Chamber of Commerce, uh, the local doctors, maybe the EMS folks, and, and bringing them together and discussing how do we address this problem? It's in community. It's a variety of approaches. It's the same with pain. How do you address pain properly? It seems to me uh, uh, that the proper way to do this is a community of of, of responses, not one one thing for everybody. Yeah. Um, the, the, the unitary kind of solitary approach uh, uh, to to it all. To me, uh, a drug that is that uh, isolates and and thrives in our own isolation um, is is defeated or combated. In, via community yeah. and that's the problem that in many areas as i said people are not do not form they live in the same place but you can't call it a community right. you can't call it a place where people know each other and spend time outside talking to one another kids playing outside all that kind of stuff it everyone's isolated no one knows each other mm -hmm. and in that situation we've we've had this problem one of the one of the biggest reasons why this problem spread was because parents upon having a child who was addicted or sometimes, uh, or then die of overdoses, would not share this with the community. They were right. terrified, they were ashamed, they were embarrassed, they would sit alone in their room crying, their arms around a, a photo album, and, and a fearing more than anything, in this searing grief that they felt, they feared more than anything that other people would find out how their kid really died, that he did not die of a heart attack or 
the, the, and the, the obituary would say died suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, well, uh, 25 years old, how do you die suddenly? Yeah. Um, you know, and so it was really this kind of, uh, uh, the parents were isolated too. Everybody was isolated. And that's how this thing spread and thrived is, is because of our own uh, isolation as Americans. <laughs> Again, I think everything useful in life, I think I learned in a 12 step program. Because one of the things they always tell you is don't isolate. <laughs> You're isolating. I see you doing that. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I didn't know I was isolating until someone told and me. You, <laughs> you, need, you need that that community, and that's what kind of AA and other groups also <laughs> provide. That's what churches provide. Yeah, sure, these kinds of These yeah. kinds of things are It's really, really important. But it's also important... Uh, early on, I think for parents early on, uh, when kids are young, to not give them everything, to say no, to yeah. n- make them work hard for things, not give them uh, 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 approval for having achieved almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, really, it's, it's like you, you get kids um, uh, growing up afraid more than anything of hard work, of discipline, of pain, mm-hmm. uh, of discomfort of any kind, of complexity. All these things are, I think, part of how kids get involved in these in these drugs. It really is really important, I think, yeah. to raise kids to say, "No, you can't have that." Yeah, or, right, no, right. you have to work. <laughs> you have to work for that. I'm not going to buy your cell phone for you. You're going to work and buy, buy it yourself. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Midwest, and I spent most of my life there. And I can tell you that here in the Northeast, they have a solution for a lot of that. It's called youth hockey. <laughs> there you go. All my kids there you go. hockey. I don't have to skate. <laughs> See, it seems to me, it seems to me that uh, that, uh, but but sports are also. I have to say this: sports are also a way that used to create community and now do not. Sports nowadays, if you get your kids involved in youth sports very quickly, if they're going to come, they, they have you have to get them into club sports. Yeah, and club sports involve huge amounts of capital money well, spent yeah, on true. on and then travel to all over it's not you're playing locally against kids you go to school with you're traveling to you know sometimes by plane even mm-hmm. to to uh to, to towns far away from you and it's taken away the community aspect of of youth sports this mm-hmm. club idea where and every weekend i know people in my community Every weekend, they're traveling 50 to 100 miles by car, staying in a community overnight mm. to play uh, sports tournaments right. in those in those community. And that's what the whole family does. Yeah. You have kids who are growing up on fields watching their siblings play mm-hmm. because the whole family kind of goes to these things. And it seems to me, uh, I, I know several parents like this or several families like this, it seems to me that that's... Uh, uh, breaking away from the the role of youth sports, mm-hmm. uh, which is should be community community based. But the problem is also uh, if you want your kid to be able to compete at high school soccer, your kid has to be in these club sports by 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 certainly by middle school, probably by by the end of elementary school. And right. to me, that's another way in which we have destroyed the community c- building uh, properties of, of certain uh, activities and sports is, is one of them. Yeah, I, I could go on with you talking about this forever. Maybe we will uh, a little bit later, but I promised I would give you, I'd cut this thing off, I'd give you time to talk about your most recent book, which is very relevant sure. to what's going on today. So please, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there's, uh, I'm working, uh, there's two things. My second book was about um, uh, uh, immigration uh, from from Mexico. Uh, that was a book I was writing, and that was really uh, the uh, that book really kind of pushed me into um, uh, understanding small Mexican villages uh, 
Uh, and small Mexican villages are where is where all Mexican immigration originates, doesn't originate from the big cities. It is also, by the way, where all drug trafficking are, originates. It doesn't originate really so much in the big cities, although traffickers may move eventually to the big cities. So my second book was uh, uh, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, True Tales of Mexican Migration, uh, and it tells uh, stories of Mexican immigrants, those those small villages. It also tells the story of my 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 one uh, very serious run-in with drug traffickers in, in Mexico, and that is actually the, uh, a fairly weird story about um, uh, uh, the Mennonite communities of 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 Mexico, particularly the one. The very large Mennonites, these are German Mennonites, basically, who live in Mexico. There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may not know that, but uh, they're very large, pretty large community south of Ciudad Juarez, about four hours. Uh, and they are very, that's a community It looks very pious and humble and religious, and they are very, very deeply involved in drugs trafficking. Mm-hmm. And, and I went down there to do that story, to do the story about the, the narco Menonitas, the narco Mennonites, and um, eventually got run out of there basically by, by those same traffickers. Um, and this was, this was in my second book. My, my, the book I'm working on now though is, is uh, another book about, about Mexico. It's about um, a famed um, uh, singer, a, ba- a ballad singer who sang ballads about drug traffickers and, and, and guys from these very same small villages that I, that I mentioned. Um, and uh, his name is Chalino Sanchez. He himself was murdered. Uh, in 1992, became a legend. He is kind of, you know, the way that Frank Sinatra became kind of this huge thing to all the Italian mobsters Mm -hmm. and mafia. Uh, Well, he is that to the Mexican cartel and drug trafficking world. Chalino is their Frank Sinatra, although he sings nothing like him. Mm -hmm. He's just a singer that they all want to kind of emulate or or love, whose music they love. and, uh, And his stories, basically his songs are mostly stories about traffickers or how about how some guy died in a shootout and this kind of thing. And, and so the, the ballad of Chalino Sanchez or the biography of Chalino Sanchez is the same. So as uh, the next book I'm working on, it also involves uh, stories about uh, uh, illegal immigration because he himself was a smuggler for a while. His brother was very big time smuggler for, for a, until he himself was murdered. In fact, murder is the, the part of the story, a big part of the story. And then the other part of the story is the, the rise of Mexican drug trafficking uh, and how the Mexicans essentially rest, take the market away from the Colombians in the 1990s and become the, the enormous uh, and rather and fearsome cartels that they are they are today. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they basically took over the, the transporting of drugs uh, from the Colombians. Uh, and so the the story of Chalino Sanchez is my is my the book I'm working on now should be take me a year to write it I think and maybe another year to publish it something like that. Well, good luck with that, and I uh, you'll come on the show, won't you, to talk to us about that? Oh, that, I'd, I'd be I'd be very. And happy. We can continue to solve the world's problems. We could pretty much wrap that up next time, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Great. Uh, Sam, um, thank you very much for being on the show today. We been talking to Sam Quinones about his book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. I think that anybody, uh, actually anybody, period, should read this book, especially anybody in the United States, but also maybe some people in Mexico. Has it been translated into Spanish? 
uh, it's going to be. It's yeah, in the process. Well, it should be. Yes, absolutely. It should be. It's probably yeah. translated into a bunch of languages, I hope. But anyway, I want to thank you very yeah. much for being on the show. And I want to thank everybody who listens to the New Books Network for tuning in. I guess we don't tune in anymore for downloading or whatever we do. So uh, I'm Marshall <laughs> Poe, the host of uh, – uh, or the, uh, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>